My name's Susan, and I'm a pothead in recovery. And I heard that, you know? Uh, most of the time I'm in a meeting and I say my name, I never hear you say, hi, Susan. It just, it just, I'm, I'm thinking about what I'm going to say. So I want to take a moment to just look out and be here and not be thinking about what I'm going to say, although I do want to say some stuff. Um, but, you know, I thought this morning there are three shares. There's the one you think about ahead of time, the one you say, and then the one later that you, all the stuff you forgot. And Paul reminded me this morning to just accept I'm not going to say everything I want to say. So it's like, okay. So I'll say I'm trying, you know, if, if I'm lucky, I won't remember what I said because that means I'm channeling. And uh, I'm hopeful for that. And um, I wanted to start by um, saying that I've learned in recovery. I mean, they said this early on that if you have a judgment about someone, that it's something inside of you. And I was like, oh, God, that's not good news, you know. <laughs> and, um, and one of the things that people would do when they'd share, if they got up in a speaker meeting and they said, well, I was born and. I go, oh, my God, this is going to, you know, but that's how I'm going to start because uh, (laughs) I was born in Brooklyn. And when I was four, we moved to San Diego. And about 10 years ago, I found out, you know, how that happened. And what we did is a year, the year before we moved. So when I was three, my aunt and uncle and their four boys fled to San Diego, and so we followed him. It's my dad's only sister, and we grew up with that family. And I found, and he's a lifelong gambler, and I found out when I was living with an active gambler, my parents told me the story that my uncle was going to be killed by bookies in New York City, and that's why he led, went to San Diego. Now, today they probably could find you in San Diego, but back in no, 1958 they didn't have computers. So we went to San Diego, and I got to grow up there, and that was really great. And the other piece about that story is that I had these four male cousins. Three of them did inappropriate stuff with me sexually over the... But one of them really, you know, was the worst. The other two were just practice kissing on me when I was little. Um, But when I was four and five, the cousin who was the, the oldest, he was 10 years older than me, he molested me several times. One time I always remembered. Um, and, and it was our secret And that's what I grew up with. I grew up knowing that there was this thing that I'd done with my cousin, even though I was five, and and it was bad, and I couldn't tell anybody. And um, so the first time I got drunk, it got lifted from me. So that's why I mentioned that, because it's such a significant part of the story for me. And, um, and then when I was clean two or three years, I remembered, oh, there were a couple other things he did when we were living with him when we first got to San Diego um, that were less invasive but still you know, creepy, creepy and hurt and all that kind of stuff. So when I was 14 is when I had my first drink and I was at a keg party and I was drinking beer and I was like, this stuff tastes like pee. This is awful. But give me some more because (laughs) because I was an alcoholic from the first time I drank. I drank to get drunk and I did. I mean, all through high school. And I'm pretty allergic to alcohol. I have horrible hangovers. I throw up. I'm the girl laying on the ground, you know, in the parties. And, you know, at the keg parties, there'd be like so many people you couldn't move. But I I just go to the keg, get my drink, walk away. I don't know why I would walk away, drink it, and then go back, you know. And the smart people would just stay at the keg. So... Then, when I was 15, and and, and the thing, I wanted, I thought of this last night. Um, The first time I heard about marijuana, I heard, I was in eighth grade, it was 1968, and I didn't, wasn't called marijuana. I hadn't heard of marijuana. I heard that there was this one bad kid in school who was, of course, the cutest kid in school, and he smoked grass. And I was like, 
lawn grass. That's all I could think of. He's smoking grass. I wonder what that does. And so I get to, but then, you know, a year later, it's 1969, and everything's exploding, and all of my circle of friends are smoking pot. But my dad's a cop. And so I figure, I know that if I smoke pot, I'm going to be shooting heroin, and I hate needles, so I better not smoke pot. So I didn't for a whole year. And um, actually near the end of 10th grade. And the first 10 years of my sobriety, I would have told you I started smoking pot when I was 16. But then when I was 10, I went, wait a minute, it was April, and I get turned 16 in August. I was actually 15 when I started smoking pot. And my friends were so excited, and we were going to go see Rod Stewart that night. Now, it is not the Rod Stewart of Moon River. It was the Rod Stewart of the small faces with a whiskey bottle in his hand on the stage. And in the San Diego Sports Arena, and so they bought an ounce, a lid, and for all you older people, <laughs> and, um, and the dealer, he, he rolled it up all day, so we had 60 joints. So we're sitting down in front of the stage, watching Rod Stewart, and every joint came through me. So I didn't feel like I got stoned. I was certainly like in an altered state, but I, you know, I didn't know what, what I was doing. And the next morning I wake up and there is resin on my thumb because of 60 joints going back and forth across my, my and I'm like, oh my God, my dad's going to see and he's going to know I'm smoking pot. Um, never again did I ever smoke 60 joints or get resin on my thumb like that. So, um, and the first few years I just smoked with those friends like, Usually on the weekends, but, you know, my friend, best friend Nan, her parents worked, which was cool, so we hung out there all the time. And I never bought it, you know, the first couple of years. Um, and I was so happy to find pot because it was instant. It didn't make me throw up. It didn't give me hangovers. And, and so it was like I, I was home, you know. I was so happy to find pot. I still got drunk plenty because when it was available. And... Um, so jump ahead a couple years, um, I'm involved with, let's see, my dad made me take typing and shorthand in high school. It was the biggest fight we ever had. And I was really good at it. I got, like, the award for shorthand in high school. It's the only award I ever got in my life. So um, the beginning of high school, girls couldn't wear pants except on Fridays, and you couldn't wear jeans. By the end of high school, it was 1970, I was wearing the most ripped-up jeans you could ever see today. And it was the day they gave out awards. So my shorthand teacher, who did not really like me, she liked that other girl who was, you know, the kiss-ass, I got the award. And I had to go down in my old, my old ripped-up jeans, you know. I remember that really well. So um, then, and I got out of high school early because I couldn't wait to grow up. And I left a year early, which I really am sorry about now because you're an adult forever. You're only a kid for a little line. And... Um, I left, so I went to junior college. I took more typing and shorthand because I was so good at it. And the teacher was a feminist. And the next, sem- next year she taught the first women's studies class in, um, at that junior college down in San Diego. And I took it. And um, I'm telling you this. I've never told this part of my story before, but it's part of my story. And because of what I'd gone through when I was little and I found feminism, it's like, oh, okay, men are the problem. Um, women are the answer. And... Um, and, you know, and I was an incest survivor, so I got involved in starting a rape hotline and teaching self-defense, being in a consciousness-raising group. I am one cliche after another, you know. Um, and so I was in this consciousness-raising group, and um, we, oh, they took me to this meeting, and all of a sudden I'm the chair of all the rape crisis centers in California. I'm 20 years old. And we took a road, and so I organized a conference, my first conference when I was 20. 
And it was in the Bay Area, but I live in San Diego, so we took a road trip. And the woman who was in charge smoked every minute she was awake. So guess what I did that road trip? And when I got back, I was, I was an addict. When I got back from that road trip, I was smoking every day, all day. And I was 20. By the time I was 21, 22, well, actually, it was, it was less than three years of smoking every day. I knew I had a problem. I knew I was an addict. I knew I couldn't live without pot. And, but I'd never heard anything about recovery. There was no answer. You know, there was just, and everybody I knew smoked like me. Oh, and this is the other story. Sorry, I thought of the other day. I hadn't thought of this in years. Um, I tried to be a dope dealer. So my friend Norm and I bought a pound of pot, and uh, everybody knew we had it. And after a month, the, pop, the pound was gone, and we sold one ounce. Yeah. So we tried it again. <laughs> it was nice having a lot of pot, you know. And that time we sold no ounces. <laughs> so I, I, quit, I quit my career as a drug dealer quite early. I just, I'm always amazed at people when they come and they talk about dealing pot. You know, it's like, wow, I could never do that. So um, I'm an addict. So the, the reason I'm talking about the whole feminist thing is I became like this lesbian separatist. I had nothing to do with men. Men were the problem. And I found this woman who didn't smoke pot. So my main attraction was she didn't smoke pot. And everybody else I knew, and we got in a relationship, and it was the worst thing that ever happened to me. Um, and uh, it's sort of, it's not embarrassing anymore, but it's, it's just sad. Um, she ended up, she isolated me from everybody for the first year, and at the end of the first year started hitting me. And, I, and I, we were at the Michigan Women's Music Festival with everything we owned in the step van, and I had nowhere to go, or I thought I had nowhere to go. Today I would know, leave all your shit and just walk away, you know. But then I didn't know that. And I was stuck with her, and I knew she was just like my father. She was a rage-aholic. She's the only person I've been in a relationship with a romantic relationship, who's not an addict or an alcoholic. <laughs> Rage hog. So um, when it ended, four years later, two people said, you should go to Al-Anon. I was like, never heard of that. You know, didn't know what it was. And if I'd gone, it wouldn't have been relevant because she was the only person I'd ever been with who wasn't an alcoholic or an addict. Um, but that was my bottom. That was 1981. And I found somebody who helped me get out of that who smoked like I did. And it was like, oh, good. I was back smoking pot, smoked more than me even, and that was kind of unusual because I was always around people who said, haven't you had enough? It's like, uh, there's no such thing. You know, there's no such thing as enough. Just give me some more. Um, okay, so then what? So, and you know, when I became the lesbian separatist, it wasn't because I was attracted, I fell in love with a woman, it was because it was a political decision. So after that relationship ended, I found myself attracted to men and not women. And I've been with men ever since. But I, you know, it's just sort of like my friend Judy once said, once a lesbian, always a lesbian, sort of in, in part of my heart. Um, but I am pretty straight now, but I don't think straight all the time. So anyway, <laughs> well, that's true of all of us. <laughs> That's why we're here. Um, so then what? So I'm smoking every day, all day again, and I'm, and I'm not getting high. <laughs> it's like, this isn't fun anymore. It wasn't fun anymore, and I could not not smoke. And I would, you know, smoke something, and then I'd, I'd like, ten minutes later, go, did I smoke something? And I'd have to go look. Oh, yeah, there's a roach. I guess I did. Give me some more. But I wasn't getting high. And... Um, I was starting to hang out. I was starting to meet people who didn't smoke like I did. So I wasn't 
not everybody around my world knew that I smoked like that. And um, oh, let me tell you what. Oh, I'm going to go back when I'm 16. This, this is how I drank. Um, David Cecil and I met in fourth grade. His best, his niece, his cousin was my best friend. And we always liked each other at the wrong time. You know, he, he liked me and I had some boyfriend and I liked him and he had some girlfriend. I mean, we were just little kids, but 16, we finally get to go out. And he's got this like 57 Chevy truck and it's all, you know, sweet and painted and nice. And we go to the Ace Drive-In and back up and he hands me a bottle of red wine. And, you know, my job was to get drunk. And loose, you know. So um, he's fixing up the truck and he's putting up pillows and blankets and everything. And that's all I remember. And the next day I walk over to see him and he's hosing off his truck. And we never went out again. (laughs) I never got the details, but I can imagine, you know, it wasn't pretty. (laughs) Never drank red wine again. couldn't, you know. And then at 19, I got so drunk on vodka, I never drank vodka again. You know, it's one of those things. So pot, oh, thank God for pot. So um, as I needed it, you know, I needed it to get through the pain that I'd felt that I didn't have any other way to cope with. And like Carol talks about, I didn't get an instruction manual for how to live my life. And, uh, and drugs and alcohol helped me get through life and not kill myself. And uh, when I was in that relationship, I did think of killing myself because I didn't know that I had choices. I lost that. So I'm raising a daughter now, and I tell her all the time that she always has a choice. She always can walk away from something that's not working. And, um, you know, when I was a kid with my father raging all the time, and he was an alcoholic, he is an alcoholic, I couldn't walk away. You know, I had nowhere to go. So I sort of carried that over until I got older. So, um, okay, so what happened? Let's see. February of 86, I told somebody. I must have told somebody I have a problem. I want to quit. I don't remember the conversation. I don't know who it was. But someone told me about N.A. So February of 86, I went to an N.A. meeting in Oakland. It was kind of scary. And I'm 32 years old, and um, I smoke pot. And I'm in, and this woman is taking a cake, and she's a heroin addict that stood on the corner of 82nd Avenue selling her body to, for drugs. And I was like, well, I don't relate to this at all. But they were really friendly. They were so friendly. And, you know, I don't know about the cake. I didn't understand it. And I said, well, I don't really belong here, but I went home, and I didn't smoke for, like, ten weeks. It was great. I'll just do it by myself. But then I got drunk, and I got stoned, and I did that another ten weeks. And then... Um, the Stevie Ray Vaughan concert, August 5th, 1986, and I was drinking all this beer, and I went in the bathroom, and someone handed me a joint, and now it's 86, people aren't sharing joint, you know, pot with people they don't know, but she did, and it was a big joint, and I took the biggest hit I could possibly take, because I knew I was only going to get one, and I got so (laughs) nauseous, and I guess I'd never been really drunk and then stoned, at least not in a blackout, I'd done it in a blackout, but it was awful, and, um, that was the last time I got drunk. So I knew I was going to see my brother, and that's what we do. My brother and sister and I are all marijuana addicts, and um, they're not in recovery. So um, a week before that concert, my friend Lori took me to my first Al-Anon meeting. It's like, oh, you go to Al-Anon? I heard of that place. I'm supposed to go to that place. Let me go with you. So I go to this Al-Anon meeting up these dark stairs, and um, see, here are the steps, here are the traditions, here are the gods. I'm like, ew. 
God. You know, I am a recovering Catholic. I don't want anything to do with God. I want spirituality. That's what I'm seeking through pot. And I got my meditation bench I've never used. But God, so but I, I was just so impressed by people sharing how they really felt. And I could relate to everybody in that room. And I was like, wow. I was I was shocked. I was sort of surprised. And I may, and I went. I kept I never stopped going. I've still never stopped going. And so which is a helpful part of my story. So that was like, you know, the end of July, July 29th. And I'm smoke and so I start smoking again August 5th and I see my brother at the end of the month and I realize I smoke a hell of a lot more pot than he does. And I get home and I'm smoking. I'm going to Alan on I'm smoking. I'm like can't really work these steps if I'm getting stoned every day. It doesn't really, it's, I don't think it's going to work. So I go to my second NA meeting, and it's the Berkeley Young People Candlelight meeting on University Avenue. And it's way different, you know, and it was, and, and I, for, I don't know, the first 18 years of my recovery, I said, and I really got the idea of fellowship at that second meeting. Well, I did because I was going to Al-Anon. So I understood fellowship, you know, and, but I, I understood what I got from that meeting was they were helping each other stay clean. And I needed help. I obviously could not do it by myself, and I needed help. And I was finally willing and ready for some help. And um, because, I don't know about you, but I thought needing help was, not a, was a sign of weakness. I've come to believe asking for help takes a hell of a lot of strength and courage. And uh, any time I can do it, you know, it's not weak at all. Um, and I wasn't buying pot anymore. I hadn't been buying. I've been trying not to buy pot. I mean, this is what I did. I wouldn't buy it, so I'd go hang out with people who had it. Um, or every time I said I was going to quit, I just smoke more, faster, so I could get rid of it. Flushing it down the toilet, how can you possibly have ever done that, you know? Like, never. I would never. i just smoke it more, you know? And then I'd be, like, deliriously stupid. So never flushed it. I would just smoke it faster. So that, that was what I did. And bury it away from my life. Why would you do that, you know? I would be afraid to hide it. I would never forget where I hid it. So even though I forget everything else. Um... <laughs> So I go to that second meeting, and I have some pot. I have an ounce of pot in my trunk for my friend Don, because I'm not buying pot anymore, but I bought some for my friend Don. Um, it's October 8th, 1986, and I go home, and I pinch a little bit, and I, and I smoke my last time. So I woke up the next day, October 9th, and I haven't gotten stoned since, and that is my sobriety day. So that's really cool. <laughs> so... Um, so 23 amazing, like I can't believe it, years. Um, and so what am I doing? So I think, okay, I, I'm in this place that um, I believe I need to get better so I'm okay. I believe I need to be perfect to be lovable. Um, I'm really hard on myself. I have no self-esteem. If I had self-esteem, I wouldn't be smoking pot all day every day. And I come in, and so I want to work these steps right away, and I want to graduate. And I want that serenity they're talking about, that I know if I do these steps, I'm going to get it, and I'm going to keep it forever. And I believe this, you know. So I don't get a sponsor right away. I am the recovering Catholic. So I, I start doing my fourth step by myself because I think confession, you know, we're, I know confession works. So, um, And then I finally get a sponsor. It's taken me, I don't know, I got an Al-Anon sponsor first. And she says, oh, we're going to start with step one. And I'm like, oh, shit. I, you know, you're throwing off my timeline. And um, <laughs> so we go back to step one. And I don't remember. You know, back in those days, people didn't really write out steps one, two, and three, in my experience. Um, now people do quite often. So 
we, you know, we talked about one, two, and three. And so the God thing, well, let me go back to that because it was like, eh. And, um, but everybody who had a higher power, they were happy people, you know, and I wanted what they had. And so I acted as if I had a higher power, which I alluded to this morning. So I had this meditation bench that I bought that I'd never use, that I would like get stoned to get meditate, would never, ever use it. So I got out the meditation bench. I made a little altar, lit a candle, and I'd sit on the meditation bench and pray to the drywall because there was nothing to connect with when I started, but I was going to act as if. So I had these prayers I'd learned here. You know, we said the Lord's Prayer in Al-Anon and and AA, and um, I had the third step prayer. I had the serenity prayer. So, okay, I have some prayers, and I'll I'll do this. And and I don't know how long it took. I don't know if it was weeks or months. I don't think it was too many months, maybe one or two. One day, I felt the presence of some undefinable love. It's really what it is but some kind of power greater than myself that I could tap into, that I could say, help, and it would help me. And it was like, whoo, it was the best thing ever. It was so much better than getting high. And I knew that's what kept me clean the first couple of years. I knew that if I smoked pot, I would lose that, and I didn't want to lose that. And you know, you hear about the sunlight of the spirit. I had this cloud of smoke blocking me from the sunlight of the spirit for all my life until then. And, and that feeling of connection, that feeling of, I'm not alone anymore. I don't have to go through life alone. Oh, my God. And, I mean, I knew the group was my higher power, was a power greater than myself, that you could stay clean and we could help each other. I knew the group, so I used the group as my higher power. But to have something that I could pray to. So then I spent the first four years of my recovery trying to figure out what it was. And... Um, and luckily, I went. I t- my home group of AA had a Jesuit priest, and he would talk about things like fire your old idea of God. So I did, like the you know the God in the sky that was monitoring my thoughts and going to send me to venial hell or you know purgatory or wherever after I died. I got rid of that God, and I thought about and I was told I could create the, you know the, the higher power of my own understanding. I thought, what do I want? Well, I want something completely loving. And non-judgmental, because I was so judgmental. My family is so judgmental. It's like, no judgments. I don't have to ask forgiveness of my higher power because I'm never judged. I have to ask forgiveness of myself. Um, And something that was there for me, supporting me all the time, whether I remembered it or not. And that's what I developed. And so I had my first idea. The third step was two oak trees and a hammock. And I laid in the hammock and I surrendered. I'll tell you, it was wonderful you know when you surrender it's so incredible and i really thought though i'm still in that magical thinking place oh great i got serenity i'm gonna have it forever oh boy i did it and uh then i wake up the next day and i got to do it again it's like oh it didn't stay it doesn't you know and until that point the word discipline was always just like ugly word still is an ugly word but I started developing discipline by doing certain things every day. And um, early on, they said, go to 90 meetings in 90 days. And I just laughed. I was like, I'm too busy for that. Now, I spent way more than one hour a day smoking pot and thinking about pot and planning when I was going to get pot and going over somebody's house to get smoke it. But um, I didn't do that. Now, here I am going to N.A., and I get my Al-Anon sponsor. She says, you really should go to A because they got better recovery. So I find this um, Berkeley Fellowship. Sunday morning step study. I'm going to that. And um, 
working the steps with my sponsor. I get to do my first fourth step. I, I don't write any assets down because there's nothing good about me. And, um, but I share all this stuff, and she sees all these amazing patterns about how hard I am. I didn't come in knowing I was hard on myself. I had to learn that by working with you and, and being, you know, being shown who I was. I didn't know who I was. I had no way to self-reflect and change things before the 12 steps of, of these programs. Um, I read lots of self-help books, but nothing ever changed. And so here I was, and I really believe there's a lot of magic in the 12 steps. Um, they've transformed me, and um, they continue to transform me. I continue to learn new stuff. More will be revealed. So um, let's see. Um, I'm going to look. Oh, I didn't tell you my trike story. Okay, I've got to tell you my trike story. I haven't thought of this in years and years, but this kind of encapsulates how I live my life until probably close to 10 years recovery, and that was if I made a mistake, I had to really be hypervigilant so I never make it again because making mistakes is not okay. If you make mistakes, and I only figured this out in the last four months, <laughs> yeah, because I'm a slow learner, um, that I, I'm in a, a relatively new relationship, and when he got mad at me one day, I was like freaked out because if he's mad at me, he doesn't love me anymore, and he's going he's gonna, to um, take away all of his love for me. And I realized that's what happened in my family. If my dad got mad or my mom got mad, they did take away the love. And so you couldn't do anything wrong because you'd lose love. So you have to be, you know, doing everything right all the time. And so I'm five years old. I'm riding this enormous tricycle. At least it seems enormous in my memory. And I don't want to get, I have to go to the bathroom, but I don't want to get off the trike. And I pee my pants. So I go in the house. I clean up. And I put a wad of toilet paper in my underwear so that if it happens again, I'm ready. That's how I've lived my life. You know, like overcompensating for this mistake in case you never. I never have peed my pants again, even when I was drinking. So (laughs) thank God I didn't put toilet paper in my pants every day. But, you know, that's how I think. That's how I thought till I got here, you know, that I had to try to figure out. Because what I learned is you never make the same mistake. Well, you do make the same mistake twice, but you're always making new ones, you know. And so you can't plan for everything. You just have to let go and let God. And, um, okay, so that's actually when I first started, and I was talking this morning in the meditation workshop that um, when I was wanting to graduate really quick, I knew I could do a bunch of the steps right away. So I didn't have to wait for a sponsor to work these damn steps. So I could do, you know, one, two, and three, and I could do 10 and 11, and I'm, I'm meditating, and um, I finally feel something. And what I did a lot, and I still do sometimes, to stop my mind is I'll say, let go and let God, over and over, in breath, out breath, just let go, let God. Just So that's my suggestion about meditation, because I know it's hard for so many of us. Um, and I've gone in and out of it, and now um, I'm in a relationship with someone who sits every day for like 30 or 40 minutes. Like, oh, I guess I better get back to my practice. So, um, all right, so where am I? So, I don't know, let me look at my notes. Um, oh, and the other thing I didn't say about meditation that helped me meditate is they say, you know, prayer is talking to God and meditation is listening. And I don't know, I was four or five years sober, and I thought, you know, Medi- that I that to honor my higher power, if I take the time to meditate, then I'm honoring my higher power. I'm, I'm giving my higher power some space because I'm talking all the time to my higher power. I'm never listening. Like 
to honor my higher power, I need to stop and let them come through, you know, it, love, come through me. Even if I never stop thinking during meditation, I'm more apt to hear my intuitive God self voice during the rest of the day if I take the time to sit. So that's another motivating thing that I use to help me sit. So, um, recovery and, oh gosh, my daughter. Um, so I'm four years sober and I moved, I got married and, um, in fact, we met when I was seven months in the program and he had seven days. Um, he'd had about seven months, but he'd relapsed the week before, but you know, so what? I'm in the Berkeley Fellowship. He's on the smoking side. I'm on the non-smoking side. So we're looking at each other and I, I'll never get involved with a smoker, but you know, chemistry happens. So, um, we got involved and we were together for seven years and, um, um, we'll tell all the details of that, but we moved to Portland in when I had four years sober. And I never wanted to have kids. I thought having kids wasn't a, a politically correct thing to do because the planet's overpopulated and all that stuff. So from the time I was about 14, I thought I'm not going to have kids. Well, those hormones, watch out, ladies, they do kick in, and they're like, have a kid, have a kid. And I moved to Portland, it's like this family town, you know. So I get pregnant like that. And... Um, I have this, and I just, I love being pregnant. It was fabulous. Um, I'm singing to my unborn child every day. I'm praying all the time, and it's great. And she comes three weeks early, and she's born not breathing. After 36 hours of intensive labor, um, I am an Amazon. So um, she's born not breathing. They revive her. They take her out of the room, and I can't move for five hours because I've just been doing this thing for 36 hours, and I'm bleeding, and I'm you know, they had to tear me open. So um, I don't know if she's going to live or die. That's kind of what it was the first couple days. And I knew somebody where I worked who's, who had a son with CP and uh, cerebral palsy. And I, ca- and I called him and, you know, just reached out for help. And I'm at the hospital every day. And she has to stay in the hospital two weeks. And I remember the second day I'm in the hot tub. They had these hot tubs for the, you know, women who've had kids. And I'm wailing away in the hot tub. And the nurse comes and says, you're, you're scaring the other mothers. <laughs> I go, sorry. So um, I have this kid, and she, uh, they said that the next day she might have cerebral palsy. Well, I don't even know what cerebral palsy is. Thank you very much. Not my kid. And uh, we go home and um, taking care of her. And she does probably look funny if you've had a kid, but I've never had a kid, you know, so the way she moves is I'm ignoring it. Um, anyway, at four months, we go back to the hospital because every kid who's been in the hospital goes back for a visit. But they know, you know, so I, I, got, I walk in. The doctor says, oh, yeah, she has cerebral palsy. And I'm like devastated. Like, fuck, can't you tell me a little bit before you just drop the bomb? And I didn't hear anything else she said and except call United Cerebral Palsy. So I am, I'm devastated. It's the worst day of my life. And... I go home, and I do wail, actually, and it's July, I believe the 17th, 1992, and it's, so it's summer in Portland, and the windows are open, it happens, and I'm in my bedroom in the back of the house. The woman across the street of the front of the house heard me, started doing my yard work for me. I didn't know why she was doing my yard work. I found out months later when my mother came and visited, and she told me that. So I am dealing with this, having this child with a, f- a physical disability, and I don't know what it means. Like, is she going to walk? Is she going to talk? Um, I'm not prepared. I don't know anything about it. And um, luckily, I, but I know how to get support. I know that I need support. I know from being here with you that 
I can't do it alone, and I don't have to do it alone. So I call United Cerebral Palsy the next day, and I talk to this woman, and she has a son with cerebral palsy. So she, like, knows, and he's 12, and she's been through this, and, and she became my anchor for that. But what happened to me spiritually is that um, I've been saying my first four years, God never gives you more than you can handle. So I was like, oh, good. Oh, good. Well, fuck. This was more than I could handle. So fuck God. Sorry, I guess I shouldn't do that. Um, okay, so I'm trying to clean up my mouth. My daughter's, you know, like, Mom. So, um, okay. So I did. I was like, I believed God wouldn't give me more than I could handle, and it was more than I could handle, so what am I going to do? Who's there for me? And, um, and I, what, one of the things that helped was reading when bad things happen to good people. Well, I don't think there's bad people, but the, the premise of the book is really wonderful. And, and it was... I don't remember. Well, life happens, and that's why you need God. That's what I came to out of that. It was like, I can't believe, because I believed God tested me before that. I believed that things that happened that were hard, oh, God's testing me, so I'll learn some lesson, so I'll be a better person, and I, I will face adversity better, and, you know, I'll be this better person. And I don't believe, I can't believe that, because things that are too hard, it's like, God's not giving me this or giving Michael cancer it doesn't work like that. Life happens. You know, cells change. And doctors make mistakes, which is what happened with my daughter. And, um, and, and you know, so I went through bargaining and I went through, I, t- I mean, it took years, a couple of years to get to that place of like, okay, life happens and that's why I need my higher power. And, and to not believe that I was being punished for something that I'd done in the past. Um, although I did find myself a year and a half ago, I, I watched this, the movie The Secret Life of Bees and I'm, driving home, crying so hard. The grief of the world is flowing through me. And I'm thinking, okay, my daughter is 17. She is, has a 9 in 10 chance of being sexually molested in her lifetime as a, a woman with a disability. And I'm bargaining with God. Okay, I've gone through all that shit. Please, don't, please let that be enough for her. You know, I'm still bargaining. So I have this daughter, and it turns out I'm a really good mom. And um, big surprise, I was like, really, me? Um, I'm so impatient. Every day, see, that this is why I got the, the CP kid. I prayed for patience every day. You know, so don't pray for patience. <laughs> but, you know, in the, in the big picture, she's the greatest blessing. So when, when her birthday comes around, it's like the hardest day of my life and the most blessed day of my life. She has taught me more patience more compassion, more empathy than I would ever have learned any other way. And she is really healthy and funny and social and amazing, as many of you know. Um, and she never stops talking now. You know, when she was little, I said, if she ever, you know, if she ever, I'll never say she talks too much. I, I don't say it to her too much but I'll say enough of the planning you know here I am in meditation noticing my planning mind and that's what my daughter does she'll be an event planner when she's an adult she already is so that was that was huge you know switching my um, spirituality around was really important and when people say you know God never gives you more than you can handle I go oh no no and I try and talk to him after the meeting like really really Uh, so um, and you know what I heard somebody say that you know we talk about life purpose and I know my life purpose my life purpose is to be of service 
I've learned that here. And I've learned that being her mom. I never feel, I still sometimes often feel like I'm not doing enough. And I go, wait a minute, okay, I'm in service like all over the place. I have hardly ever stopped being of service to MA. Oh, I wanted to tell you what happened. I didn't even tell you that piece. So here I am, like four or five months sober. I'm going to AA. I'm not taking chips. I'm not raising my hand. I'm not speaking because I don't belong here. I'm not an alcoholic. I mean, I haven't drank since high school, really. So I'm going to these meetings. I'm going to Al-Anon, but I don't really belong. And then Harry stands up after the meeting at the Berkeley Fellowship Sunday morning and says, we started this program, Marijuana Anonymous. And I was on him so quick after that. You know, he waited till the end because you're not supposed to make non-MA-related announcements. Thank God he did. And they were starting the second, the man down in house meeting had started like two weeks before that. And the Wednesday meeting was starting that Wednesday. And I could go and share the meeting because I had four months. I was an old time. So um, (laughs) I got to chair my first MA meeting. And I was home. And I was so home that I was home everywhere. And it was so, so important. So, you know, when somebody said the other day, you know, Carol was talking about that, about how grateful we are for MA or different people talking about that. Because I know what it's like to not have it. It was horrid. And I didn't belong. And I didn't, you know, so I got to get, we didn't have chips right away. We had marbles. So you could get your marbles back. (laughs) And we would paint the numbers on them with lipstick or uh, nail polish. So, um, and I still have my two-year. It's my foosball ball for our foosball table. Um, Let me see. Oh, and you know, even though, you know, I, I, I didn't, I never thought about when I smoked pot that I had to have a reason, like I was happy or sad. I just smoked pot. I didn't have or have a reason, you know. Um, so today, a lot of that perfectionism, I mean, it's dropped away. And I remember, okay, so this is what happened. When Marie was almost two, I was still reading developmental charts and being hurt by them of when she should walk and when she should talk and all this crap. And um, my, my marriage was falling apart, and we went to a counselor, and he said, well, why don't you do a grief ritual? And I thought, great, I love ritual. You know, I love ritual. So I um, developed a ritual, and I created this baby out of paper, and I went through magazines of all the things I thought, like my daughter, she's never going to do ballet, she's never going to ride a bike. And I cut out all these pictures, and I put them on this doll, and I filled her with paper, and she was like 3D. Invited some friends, and we all talked about lost dreams, because we all have lost dreams. We all have things that didn't turn out the way we'd hoped. And we all shared that, and I put the baby on the fireplace and lit her up. And what I was letting go of was the baby I thought I was going to have with Marie, because she kept getting in the way. I couldn't see Marie, because I kept seeing this other kid of like, oh, she's supposed to, she's supposed to, you know, like doing it, shooting ourselves, right? So I was shooting my daughter. And I lit this baby up, and it was 3D, so it kind of looked like a baby, and it was like, whoosh. And it was the most powerful ritual I've ever done in my life, because it was like the next day, I just never looked at another developmental chart again, and just went, wow, you know, we're all unique. She's really unique. Like, I don't know what's going to happen and when and all this stuff. And she's still hard to understand verbally. Um, Grief can come up at any point. Like um, when she was four and I heard this four-year-old talking in complete sentences, it was just like, ah. Um, but she can talk and she talks all the time, like I said. Um, you can't always understand her. But um, once you get to know her, you, you do a little better. Even I don't understand everything she says. Um, so what else? Oh, I wanted to thank all the workshop leaders for leading workshops since we didn't do that. So thank you all for leading workshops. <laughs> Thank you.
um, kind of, and so when she was so this ritual, I'm seven years sober. I do the ritual. And um, what I realized, what I realized was she's healthy. She's happy. Um, she's CP's not a medical condition. She doesn't have health issues. She has motor issues. How she moves is different. And it's not I don't even want to use the word disability anymore. She's not, she's just different. Um, she's not disabled. And um, society disables her by our attitudes. So um, I started using gratitude as a tool. That was what's so significant. Seven years sober. Before that, it was a topic at a meeting that I wasn't always appreciative of. You know, people would say, oh, it's gratitude month again. Oh, God. So here I am, and I'm, every day I'm waking up, and my prayers, I'm not praying for patience, and I'm not going to pray for humility. Thank you very much. I'm going to pray my thank yous. So I'm grateful that I have this healthy daughter. I'm grateful my feet work. I'm grateful I have a, a skull because I met a girl who was born without a skull. And in taking Marita Shriners and all these appointments, I, I've met all kinds of kids with all kinds of things that you would not even believe were possible. And, um, and how my brain, my muscles listen to my brain because that's what's going on with my daughter. The muscles don't listen to the brain. So mine do. And they always have. And I can talk in complete sentences most of the time. And... Um, you know, I have so much to be grateful for. I never, I was never appreciative of my feet before, you know, her difficulty learning how to walk. And she does walk today, and that's great. And um, so that's, that's my practice, and it has been ever since. And we prayed out loud in the car going to child care and school, and we still do. But I've learned, I just learned recently, she's having trouble sleeping. She's almost 18. She's going to be an adult. It's a little scary for her. And she's having trouble sleeping. And we were, t- I said, well, you know, pray. And she doesn't feel connected to a higher power. And so we're starting our meditation practice, to, trying to do that and, um, and talk more about that so she can have that. Because I have this, but I don't believe in church, so I don't go to church, so there's that lack. But working on that. But um, something my, my favorite sponsor told me was to pray for kind and gentle lessons. Because until, you know, 7, 8, 9, 10, it was 11 years sober that I went, you know, this hammer, I think I'll put the hammer down now. I was 11 years sober, and uh, I believe in the 100th monkey principle that if enough of us do it, you don't have to wait 11 years to do it. Um, And then something I've been telling a lot of people lately, because um, I believe, I heard this in the last year, worrying is praying for bad things to happen. And that's a good thing, because I used to be a real worrier, because I thought if I worried about it, you know, like putting the underwear in my pants, I could prevent bad things from happening. But it's just focusing on bad things, and I would rather not do that today. So um, that the, this is a Chinese proverb, it's in one of the Al-Anon books, that the birds of misfortune fly over your head is, you know, are the thoughts. There's nothing you can do about. But if you let them build a nest on your head, that you have some control over. So it's, you know, it's like the meditation stuff of like, just let them pass. Okay, I had this thought, thanks, but I'm not, I'm not giving you, you know, I'm not renting space to you today. So... Um, Oh, gosh, I'm doing pretty good. Um, and I am a dopeless hope fiend. I have a lot of hope. heard somebody say they didn't have a lot of hope. And that, um, I have lots of hope. And, um, and I have a bumper sticker that says dopeless hope fiend. We've got to make them for the next convention, I think. Um, and then, you know, about the, I heard so many women talking in the women's meeting about mother stuff. And um, my, my journey, 
you know, when, when I was new in recovery, people didn't talk about inner child stuff very much. It was real. It was brand new. And Melody Beattie hadn't come out with her book yet. And Bob Earl wasn't speaking yet. But they came really soon thereafter. I was so blessed. And um, so I got to, like, you know, look at my inner child stuff. And, you know, she was didn't trust me. I'd, I'd stayed with that woman who beat me up. She didn't trust me. And so my first experience of inner child, you think it's going to be this, like, great relationship. It's like, no, she, like, didn't trust me. So, and I realized that, you know, I love my parents, and they may, I think they loved me. I wasn't so sure. Um, but they, that they did the best they could, that kind of stuff, which we have to say. But it wasn't enough. You know, it wasn't enough. And I, what I heard in going to ACOA meetings was I had to be my own parent. And I was so angry with that at the beginning. Like, I don't want to be my parent. I want somebody else to take care of me because everybody else knows more than me. That's how I believed. I believed that, that I'd go around asking people what I should do because you all knew more than me. And so what I've learned in, in, in recovery was that I did have a source of, I, I do know what's best for me. I can't always get it without your help. I need to talk through things. I'm a talker. I need to talk through things. I can't just do it in my head. Um, but I have a sponsor and I have lots of women in recovery that I can call for any time I need to, to work through stuff. And that's really, really incredible. And, um, and, and I realized, so I'm going to ACOA meetings all these years. And, and um, two, year, two weeks sober, my parents came to visit. I went, my dad drinks every day. I wonder if he's an alcoholic. And, and then I decided, well, in AA, you can't name somebody else. You've got to just name yourself. So I let that go. But about three years ago, I went, my dad's an alcoholic. I grew up in an alcoholic home. And so, you know, it takes me a long time to get stuff. But it was helpful. And, and then realizing that his rageaholism is still alive and well. Um, and, uh, but I don't have to take it seriously. So when he does it, I laugh. I actually laugh at my dad when he gets all funky and worried about stupid shit. It's like, really? You're going to get worried about that? And I can laugh about it today, which is just a miracle. Um, I don't have to be afraid of people's anger. And I've just been learning that. Oh, so a couple minutes about healthy relationships. I got a request. So um, the only thing in my life I ever wanted has been a relationship. A, a romantic partnership with someone who wanted to be a partner with me. I picked lots of partners who really didn't want to be a partner, and but I tried to make it work. So um, last year I actually went to the depths and joined an online dating service, which I said I'd never do. So I, you know, and I'm like, okay, and I'm doing this for a few months. I'm like, okay, God, you know, this is the only thing I've never had career plans. I don't know about you, but I didn't grow up knowing what I wanted to be. I didn't have dreams when I was a kid. This is the only thing I wanted. And I thought, why would I want this my whole life if I'm never going to get it? But, okay, I guess maybe I won't get it. Maybe I'll be single the rest of my life. I've got a lot of great friends, great daughter. Okay. All right. So I met him. I, I finally met him in September. And um, we met online, and he has a son with Down syndrome the same age as my daughter. Um, he has been in AA almost 27 years. He still goes to meetings. He has sponsees. He has a step study. And he wants a partner as much as I want a partner. And he shows up, and we work through stuff. And we've had some stuff come up, of course. I mean, when we met, he was like, we'll never fight. And I'm like, yeah, we will. <laughs> <laughs> so the threatened places in us come up, and they come up to get healed, you know, if we can heal them. If someone's willing to do the work with us. I've just never had someone willing to do the work with me before. And now I do. It's like, and then I get to heal. And uh, it's just really amazing. So I'm 55 years old and I finally get 
what I've wanted, and and we're engaged. And I have this, I'm like engaged, you know. <laughs> and my job is being the woman that the moms call when they get the diagnosis. I work at United Cerebral Palsy, and I am the mom that people call, like I called her. So it's pretty cool. <laughs> so. I mean, what a difference 23 years makes, you know. <laughs> I have a job I love, and I have a partner I love, and I have a daughter who's, who's blossoming in the world and um, is selling her art already. So, you know, that's really wonderful. And, um, and I have all of you. And in the dance floor last night, I just really was so like, wow, okay, it only happens once a year. And, like, breathe it in, you know, just soak it in, everybody who's there, to just, I just love you all so much. And... Um, and that's what my higher power is. It's the space between us. This Indian aesthetic said that on PBS a couple months ago, I guess, on a spirituality thing. It said, God is the space between us. And I think it's, I've been saying it's the energy that beats our hearts, that flows between us. And um, that's my kind of my current idea. But I still have this big lap I get to sit in to be held. Because no matter what's going on, I'm held. And I get to sit in that lap and just go, okay, I'm safe in the world, and uh, even when I don't feel safe. But mostly I do these days. Mostly I know I'm loved. I am loved. And I'm an okay person, and it's, like, really cool. So thank you so much.